It's time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Anzinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. So today is June the 25th in 2022, and my guests are Robin Hansen and Tom Bennett. Robin Hansen is the Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University. Robin is the author of books such as The Elephant in the Brain, and he's the world's foremost expert on prediction markets. Robin, welcome to the show. <laughs> uh, thank you for having me, and nice to meet you both, Nicholas and Tom. And Tom Bennett is the founder and CEO of Futur, that's F-U-T-U-U-R, a prediction market where you can trade on future events with play money or crypto. Tom, welcome to the show. Thank you, and uh, great to be with you. And uh, Robin, uh, it's, it's an honor to be with you as well. Yeah. Pioneer in the prediction market space and big, big inspiration for what we've done. Thanks. Fantastic. Robin, what are prediction markets and why are they so important? Well, prediction markets are basically betting, which is basically the same as speculation. And so most financial markets really are full mostly of speculation. Uh, that is most commodities, most stocks, et cetera. And uh, betting markets are a, a version where the thing you're betting on is more explicit, uh, a particular claim that can be expressed and judged. And speculative markets and betting markets in particular are important because uh, they're one of our main mechanisms, social mechanisms for aggregating information. And information is important because it's at least half the problem in most decision-making. Most of uh, the time we have to make decisions in the world, we have to combine our values and our beliefs and information is what informs our beliefs. And so most of the time when decision-making goes badly, it's because of bad information and Prediction markets are one of our best mechanisms for aggregating information, therefore, to help make better decisions. And therefore, there's an enormous potential for better using betting markets to get better information, to make better decisions in most walks and areas of life. So if stock markets are kind of a prediction which companies will be successful, right? And prediction markets are kind of what events will occur, right? What will, how big will COVID be, right? Or will... Russia, will Russia um, invade the Ukraine and things like that, right? Uh, right. So that is, right. you can make a bet on, say, a horse race or something, and then you're defining an event in language, and you're going to verify that the event happened. Uh, or you can just have assets in the world that have value indirectly through to thousands of different events. And then they are indirectly bets on all of those different events. Uh, and it's often then harder to figure out exactly what events they depend on, say, the value of Google stock or something. But they are basically a bet on lots of different events, but bets are cleaner in some sense in that they tell you more directly what they are bets on. Well, the traditional way to get information to predict the future, to make better decisions is experts' judgment. What's wrong with that? It isn't wrong. It's just at a different level of, uh, of the analysis. That is, to get more information in the world, you want individual humans and AI, when you have them, to look at things and draw inferences to do statistics or reasoning and therefore to make judgments about things. And then you want an institution to induce people to make those judgments and to aggregate their judgments. That is, many different people are capable of making many different judgments. And when they do simultaneously, they may well disagree. And you want an institution that uh, collects different judgments to different people and entices them to make judgments. 
And um, that institution is just at a different level from the mechanisms by which you make judgments. So prediction markets kind of have clear defined outcomes, right? So that allow you to say whether something is true or false, right? Often when you read the media or the news, people are saying kind of grandiose things or have conversations um, where they say this will happen in the future, but, um, you know, there's no clear defined outcome, right? Conversation is one of our other main mechanisms for aggregating information, but conversation doesn't try as hard to make sure each claim stated is clearly defined or, you know, could clearly be resolved. We sort of allow ourselves to float at some distance away from more clear statements and figuring that we roughly understand. So how big could prediction markets become? How could they influence our lives in the future? Well, almost everyone makes a lot of decisions all the time. So if this is one of our best mechanisms for aggregating information to make decisions, it has enormous potential. Uh, we could say, well, where is it likely to be better than the other mechanisms? And the best candidates would be where you suspect people aren't being entirely honest in other mechanisms and where the decision is somewhat important. So you make, you know, thousands of decisions every hour in terms of where you put your foot or things like that. It's going to be much more challenging for prediction markets to help inform those decisions because the costs uh, you know, the value is so low and the, the cost would have to be driven low. But in any organization where decisions get big and where, as people usually do feel, not everyone's being entirely honest, then uh, for that range of decisions, there's enormous potential for prediction markets to help everywhere. I'm curious to hear just your, your version of the kind of prehistory of, of prediction markets before your innovations. And, and uh, you know, I know you, were, you played a big role in popularizing them, but what existed in the way of prediction markets prior to your, uh, your involvement? So a word of caution, uh, one of the things I learned when reading about the history of science is that when historians go study some period of science, the picture they paint and the, the answer they get is actually qu often quite different from what the advocates or famous people in an area were saying. That is people who end up being the winners in some area, they get to tell the story of their area. And they tell it, you know, in a way that looks good for them. And uh, that's just not that trustworthy. <laughs> you, you need to actually get some historians to look at some details. So I, I would just give that caution to listening to anybody like me, who's a player in an area and asking them about the history. That's a dangerous thing to do to believe what they tell you. Okay. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, setting that, you know, having made said that, uh, basically what I'd say is, uh, we, we've had betting, we've had betting markets for centuries. It's, it's not a new concept. And I actually looked when I, when I first had the idea, Hey, couldn't we do betting markets and more things? I went and did a large search of other people who might've written on that topic. And eventually I found you know, like a half a dozen people who over the years had written something in an academic context where they said, Hey, looks like we could use betting markets and more things than we usually use might be, might be useful. And so they had all said that to some degree, and some of them were much more famous than I, but they had just made that as a side comment and went on to other things. And there was this group of people who had a project at the time I was writing, which was the Iowa Electronic Markets, where they were setting up these betting markets on elections and some other things. And they were focused on, you know, how good markets were doing various things. And they were in general sort of optimistic about like, hey, we could do more stuff with this, but they weren't picking particular visions of what you could do and pushing for that. From my point of view, the thing that I did different was just pushed farther on imagining how much farther you could go with these things than people had gone. So at the time there were sort of various stories people told about why there weren't more markets in the world. It was a classic question, you know, there, in principle, there could be all these markets, but we only have a few. And people had made up a bunch of story, plausible stories about why there was just natural limits, why it wouldn't make sense to have more of them. And examining those arguments, I thought, well, that they aren't as strong as people were giving them credit for. <laughs> that is, you know, once I understood, say, all the legal obstacles and the history of, of what people have tried and what had been blocked, it seemed to be much more like the area of most other kinds of innovation where you know, it just needs somebody to try things in order to work out the details in order for ideas to, to spread to more things than they had before. And in most other areas of innovation, people 
do usually have some sort of story about why various things you could imagine aren't actually happening. And then you have to track the technology to see whether something's changing. So, you know, what I would say is I just painted a larger picture of where all this could go, all the other places you could apply prediction markets to. And it wasn't that, you know, the other people who were into, you know, betting markets and writing on that, they, in some sense, probably were sympathetic to that larger vision of possibilities. But they were very aware that they were sort of contrary in a larger world that had said, well, you know, that doesn't make sense. That'll never work. And they were trying to be cautious about like seeming like a reasonable person to say, well, maybe we should just go over here a bit, a little bit. Hey, why not do that? And I was just the person who said, no, we could, we could go a lot farther. And I, and I initially wrote on that in sort of very somewhat speculative ways and in not very academic prestigious context in context such that I really had no right to expect anybody to ever read that stuff again. But somehow I got lucky in that when I was writing about it in the next decade or so, a lot more people got into that area. And then there were some funded projects and I was involved in those and some people read my stuff. And then, you know, somehow it spread. And so I am known for someone who wrote early on the wider range of where it could go. And of course, I also didn't just speculate on the wider range. I was involved in many particular projects where I tried to work out some of the limitations and technology issues. So like you mentioned, the, the uh, market makers uh, developed combinatorial market technologies. I, we did lab experiments on manipulation and other kinds of sabotage and uh, you know, tried to uh, get some people to do various trials. And you know, that's the kind of things I was doing. So Robin, so what is Futarchy? Uh, so Futarchy is a name for another name for decision markets, i.e. prediction markets applied to decision-making in particular to governance decision-making, um, making governance decisions. So, um, and governance is definitely a context where we usually expect or suspect that many people aren't being entirely honest in what they say in conversation. And so it's a, and the governance decisions tend to be higher value than most decisions. And so it's a good plausible application for prediction markets where we could use prediction markets for governance. So the, the key idea is that we have some sort of outcome measure and then we have prediction markets predict that outcome measure conditional on which decision you might make. So an example I like to use is firing a CEO from a firm and uh, we could use the you know, financial market price of the firm as a outcome measure. We want to fire the CEO or not, depending on whether it'll improve the value of the firm and our discrete decision are, is to fire or not fire the CEO or just condition on whether the CEO leaves. And so in one case, we could have a market estimate of the value of the firm conditional on the CEO leaving or conditional or conditional on the CEO staying. If we compare those two prices, the difference is the market speculators advice about what to do in that situation. It's a decision advice, an example of a decision market. Um, what people aren't entirely honest with what they're saying, how come? <laughs> well, we understand, uh, in great detail that people in organizations and in social contexts have a wide range of incentives and you know, many of them aren't perfectly aligned with telling the truth. Uh, that should be familiar to most people understanding, uh, they've seen human interaction happen through their lives. So for example, there's often a conformity incentive. If everybody in the room uh, yesterday was very lamenting the abortion court decision, then your incentive is also lament that. Uh, regardless of what you might privately think, you know, it'll go over better to go along with the rest of the room. Similar things happen in organizations' decision-making. So, so you know, there's a yes-man incentive, for example. Uh, often managers give a hint about what decision they'd prefer, and that induces subordinates to be yes-men, i.e. to support the decision and not bring up issues that might question it. Exactly. You wrote a fantastic book about that, The Elephant in the Brain, which is essentially about humans signaling other motives than what they really have, right? Well, now often we are aware that we're not tell entirely telling the truth. We're aware that we have these other incentives. Well, now often we are aware that we're not tell entirely telling the truth. We're aware that we have these other incentives. But uh, a remarkable fact is that um, even when we think we're being sincere, uh, we're often just wrong and not telling the truth, even to ourselves. Tom, you said um, you've been influenced by, by Robin and others on prediction markets. So what motivated you to create Futur and what is it that you want to achieve with it? I think a lot of, uh, a lot of 
what's been discussed up until this point around the difficulty of, you know, garnering information from, for instance, conversations or, you know, uh, just talk or even reportage where it's not um, tied to objective outcomes makes for worse decision-making. So the, the, the basic intuition is that if we can generate better forecasts, more accurate forecasts about significant future events, uh, we can drive better decision-making uh, around those events. Admittedly, there might be some assumptions buried in there, but that's the, that's the basic premise of, of, of what we're doing. You know, I first heard about prediction markets, I think it was back in, you know, 2007 or so, uh, when, uh, for the presidential election, there was some talk around prediction markets. I'm pretty sure Robin's name popped up at that point and the idea intrigued me time I was working on another project, um, more recently decided to put something together and Robin talks quite a bit about this as well. The, the, you know, it's a, the concept of prediction markets is, uh, relatively simple. And I think there's a, a number of compelling arguments as to why we would want more broadly, uh, spread out prediction markets being used more. Um, but for whatever reason, and, and I have some theories about that. I think Robin probably has some theories. Uh, they haven't really gotten off the ground, so they haven't reached scale, uh, just yet. Partly that's around regulatory issues. Partly, I think there's some, some misaligned incentives and issues with people not, uh, having the motivations that they project themselves to have, um, which I think elephant, elephant in the brain did an excellent job of, of, of encapsulating, but you know, the there was no real impediment to creating a prediction market. Uh, so we, we launched in 2017, we launched Futur with play money only. Uh, and so we were using a reputation based system. Uh, and the idea is that forecasters were making their bets using the basic prediction market mechanic and, uh, generating forecasts. And, you know, the incentive was around, uh, reputation purely more recently we've added real money. And, and obviously I think when, when, when real money is on the line, people, uh, find that to be a very compelling incentive to make accurate predictions. Um, and in fact, we've, we've, um, generated some results that, that, that indicate that. So, so to date we've had probably have on the order of over 40,000 forecasters who have made predictions, um, both in play money and real money, uh, across, uh, at this point, more than 60,000 events, the real money, as I said, was added more recently, uh, and, and we did some comparisons and we've noted, uh, that not surprisingly, the forecasts are uh, made in real money. Uh, so maybe I should back up and explain a little bit how Satur works. So we, we, we have, um, play money markets and then in parallel, we have real money markets where you can bet using crypto, uh, your choice of crypto. Uh, we offer, I think seven different cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Litecoin, Ethereum, USD. Like crypto. Uh, well, it, it, much less bureaucracy and friction, uh, and more importantly, uh, lower fees. So in the, in the gaming space, we, we operate, uh, a real money markets under a gaming license from, from Curacao and the payment providers that operate with fiat currency in the gaming space charge, uh, very, very high fees. And that kind of runs against our overall philosophy of trying to operate as efficiently as possible and, and generate more accurate forecasts. And so obviously if we keep fees to a minimum, uh, there's more of an incentive for forecasters to make their bets and it generates more accurate forecasts at the end of the day. Um, so we decided to focus on crypto for the time being, uh, that does, you know, it's a limitation in terms of, you know, you have to have uh, a cryptocurrency to be able to, to bet, but, but, uh, for now the, the lower fees uh, make it worth it. We are thinking about adding fiat in the future. Um, but, but right now. We've got a lot to do just with, uh, just with crypto. Um, so just to finish the point you know, we have, uh, our play money markets operating in parallel to our real money markets using the same basic mechanics. And we were able to do some comparisons, uh, in terms of the accuracy of these forecasts. We've built up quite a, quite a track record over the past couple of years. And, uh, not surprisingly, the real money markets, um, have generated somewhat more accurate forecasts than play money markets to go briefly into the numbers, the, the, the Briar score, uh, for the play money markets that we evaluated were, you know, there were bets both in play money and real money. We had, uh, over 5,000 of those markets were, you know, 
um, markets that, that had, had bets in both play money, real money. On the play money side, the buyer score was 0.20 something. And on the real money side, it was 0.1766. Um, so, uh, and the lower the number, the better, the more accurate the forecast. Indeed, real money generated more accurate results. And so we're excited to kind of continue yeah, yeah. expanding that side of things. Just to give an example from my own experience, because I'm a user of Fortour, um, what stood out to me is A, it's, I can use it, right? So many of the prediction markets in the United States, I can't use as a non-American and Futura I can use as a German. Um, yes. And it just had a better user experience in terms of you show um, the percentages that you give to each outcome. And then in my head, I sort of think, oh, I think the chances are different. So I bet on an outcome that I think has actually a higher chance of curing or a lower one that other that it's um, recorded as so far. And one bet where I made a lot of money on Futur was the Europe, the inflation rate in the EU, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Because um, the public perception or the market was biased towards a higher number, right? Because the last um, two or three months out of the past year have seen very high inflation. And when you Googled very quickly, Europe inflation rate, most of the results set a very high number, but they weren't saying the inflation number for the entire year. So I looked at the website of the, the institution that is reporting these numbers, and they actually had Excel tables and files with definite numbers on the inflation rate. And when I averaged it, it was much lower than what most people predicted. And I got like a 2% versus 98% against other outcomes. Wow. So I was kind of incentivized to find the truth and the truth was already out there. So I was correcting the prediction and the forecast by placing a bet, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very simple mechanism for aggregating information and providing an incentive for people to contribute that information to the, to the market. So it's, you know, a little bit of Googling and you were able to make some money. Um, I think demonstrates how effective a mechanism it is. I think I mentioned that we're operating under a gaming license from Curacao, which excludes certain jurisdictions, unfortunately, including the U.S. US residents um, are not able to bet in the real money markets on Futur, but they can bet for the reputation as forecasters using our play money um, markets. And then folks elsewhere in the world can, can bet on, on the real, real money markets. That's a good segue into what I'd like to ask you about regarding the regulatory state, right? So Robin, you've been working on prediction markets for at least two decades, probably more. Why is it so difficult to establish prediction markets specifically in the United States? Uh, so gambling laws are the immediate obstacle. Uh, that is the history of financial regulation is basically that all gambling of any sort was illegal And then exceptions were carved out for particular financial products that seemed to be useful. So stocks were initially illegal and then they became legal. Insurance was illegal and it became legal. Options were illegal. And so what we have now is a set of areas where the general ban on gambling has been, you know, carved out as exceptions for stocks and commodities and options and various currency trading, et cetera. But um, everything else is illegal. Um, so th that's the main obstacle, but in fact, uh, standard gambling law has three elements. There's, um, you, you basically put consideration in, you get consideration out and there's some sort of chance in between. That's what you require for gambling. So you can evade gambling regulations if you break any of those three. So for example, if you say there's not champions in between, it's a game of skill then it's not gambling. And people have tried to use that, say, to make poker not be illegal because it's a game of skill, et cetera. Uh, you can also break the out part. That is, if you put money in and then the money doesn't come back to you, it goes to charity. You can also have that be legal. So there's a Long Bets is a website that's based on that model where you put money in, but the money goes to charity. And thirdly, you can break it if you don't actually put the money in, but you get it out. So uh, if your company, say, sponsors markets where they give you the money and then you bet and then you take away your winnings, that's not gambling because you didn't put the money in. And that's a common way that or many organizations can allow betting markets within, within their organization because they would then sponsor their employees and associates to participate. Well, but it just sounds like you have to take a couple of 
you have to get creative with how you make it work to not be potentially regulated. Right, but one of the points is for most internal organizational markets, uh, law is not actually an obstacle. It's more actually local politics obstacles than law. That's the reason why most organizations don't have internal prediction markets. Yeah, we'll get to that certainly. Tom, how did you get to select Curaçao as a place where you could incorporate and what options does it give you? First of all, yeah, to deal with this, this issue, we just did play money. So that was kind of the first, the first step in, in, in launching the, the prediction market. We then evaluated options for adding real money betting. Um, there's a number of jurisdictions that gaming companies typically go to for their kind of blanket license, um, call it a global license that's not country specific. Curacao is one of those, Malta is another, Isle of Man is one, there's a few of them. Basically, we just evaluated the, the amount of work and money that it would take to get a license and what the license would allow us to do at the end of the day, and Curacao came out on top. These things change from year to year, though, so uh, obviously things evolve quickly, but we've been quite happy with, with uh, the Curacao license. We operate in most of the world uh, with real money, and like I said, with a few exceptions, including the U.S., uh, France, Australia, and a couple other um, countries. Um, again, play money betting is available in those jurisdictions. Real money uh, and play money is uh, available elsewhere. So yeah, no, nothing too too complicated. Uh, we we uh, took a few months and some money to uh, to get the license, and, and uh, there we were off to the off to the races. What is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission? Uh, the CFTC and why is it so against prediction markets? Uh, well, just in general, the CFTC is a political agency that's very risk averse. And as with most uh, political agencies, they're, they're weighing the sides of the equation. So there have been many times in the past when agencies like that have been criticized for markets they've allowed. And so they see themselves as trying to make markets that would have a lot of trading and they use sort of the quantity or volume of trading as, as a criteria of quality. And so many betting markets, even though they add a lot of information, they don't have huge volumes of trading. And they also like run the risk that somebody will object and there'll be a new scandal about it. And so they are just playing it safe to okay, stay away from the things that might show up in the news. Just to point out the, so, um, you know, there's been some dispute in, in the U S as to whether, which, which should be the regulatory agency around, uh, prediction markets, prediction markets combine elements of gambling with elements of, you know, more classical trading. So is it, you know, does one need a gaming license or does one need a license from the CFTC? That seems to be getting sorted out. So in the past, there's a, uh, organization called Predict It, which has a, a pretty active, uh, prediction market that's focused on politics in the U S. Uh, and they've been operating for a number of years with a CFTC, uh, letter, basically a, a letter that says that CFTC isn't going to go after them. <laughs> and then more recently, uh, another organization called Kelshi has successfully navigated through the CFTC kind of regulations and they've managed to get a license for a prediction market that's also focused on the U.S., um, I think with a more financial focus. And um, so there seems to be some progress there and, and uh, it seems to be getting a little less opaque and kind of arbitrary and there seems to be some uh, clearer rules about what it takes. So, you know, in the future, we'll definitely be evaluating, you know, whether to try and do real money within the U.S. Mm-hmm. What I find interesting with the CFTC and with some other regulatory agencies is sometimes a difference. Sometimes you can just not do it in the United States or do a company that does some of these things, but it's fine if an American uses, you know, a company from another country or does, you know, goes to medical tourism to another country to receive a treatment or, but in this case, Tom, you can't offer the service to an American and you have to make sure that you know your customer, right? You're under KYC and that you're not selling to Americans, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, uh, we, we do do uh, KYC above certain thresholds and, you know, do our best to make sure that nobody's uh, getting around the limitations and, and uh, making bets when they shouldn't be. Yeah. But I just find it interesting because, you know, the agency, uh, you know, regulatory agencies are risk averse, of course, um, but what would they care if someone does it in another country, right? Or uses a service from another country? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the classic historical example and probably the prediction market that got to the 
largest scale uh, was called Intrade. And I think they were operating out of Ireland. I could be wrong about that. Um, back around, around the year 2000, they were, they were pretty active. And they were operating in the U.S. And they shouldn't have been, according to, I believe it was the CFTC that went after them. And um, they had a, a pretty, uh, pretty tragic end <laughs> to that, to, to Intrade. And I think that's one of the, just the, the kind of historical part of the context that explains why we don't have prediction markets at scale today is just, you know, they, they went about it the wrong way, ran into trouble with the U.S. Uh, legal regime. And, and, uh, and unfortunately, you know, that ended their, their operations. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the U.S. takes this very seriously and it's a very specific kind of, kind of, kind of set of laws, you know, it's, 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 uh, there's kind of the U.S. and there's the rest of the world when it comes to this sort of kind of legal regime and, um, U.S. Uh, regulatory agencies and especially the CFTC take their take their function very seriously. So they they're quite aggressive going after folks if if they're dealing with U.S. based customers. Could we go back to discussing the like the larger social promise here and how it relates to like Tom's company and other possible things we could do? Sure. Uh, so so we you know said the value of information is for making decisions. So the, the big potential is to get markets that are close to decisions that people are making. Most decisions are private decisions uh, done locally in an organization or in somebody's personal lives. The, the kind of things that show up in, say, the newspaper or uh, even in podcasts tend to be a sort of a, a, a subset of all the information of interest. It's, it's this sort of public conversation topics. And... Public conversation is important, but it's, it's one of many sort of spheres where things happen in information. And in public conversation, people often have an incentive to just speak up about a public topic, even if they're not going to be paid to do that. And people often are quite eager to participate in the public conversation. And in some sense, that's where these uh, public prediction markets like Tom's are sitting in that space. They're basically, as a, as a, business, their customer is the people willing to speak up and actually willing to pay to speak up. Uh, so they put up a question and then the people who are interested in speaking up on that question participate. And those people get the altruistic credit for sort of helping the public conversation. And they may get the personal credit of showing they actually know something compared to the people they're beating in the markets. And that's, you know, a valuable contribution, but it's really only a pretty small fraction of all the different ways people have incentives to provide information in the world. And it also seems to be that people in public conversations, they're not that eager to bet in, as their way to contribute to public conversations. They often would rather type in words in chat rooms, et cetera, uh, or, you know, to talk to people at parties about them. And so there's, there's actually a bit of a challenge to get people to redirect their altruistic public conversation efforts toward betting markets, uh, but even that doesn't help so much with all the other private decisions out there in the world, uh, where I, I think there's a different business model is more appropriate. Yeah. It's a very interesting kind of general, um, framing, uh, I guess on the point of the basic motivations, I, you know, the example of, of Nicholas, uh, voting on inflation rate in the EU on true tour and betting on, on the inflation rate, um, wasn't necessarily altruistic. I, I you know, I'm not, not going to question Nicholas's motives, but I'm, I'm going to assume that there was some incentive to make some money on, on, on that bet. And in, indeed he made some money. So there is a, a financial incentive that goes beyond, um, the idea of altruism when you're making a real money bet. But in order for that market to exist, there had to be other people on the other side of his bet who lose. So he won, somebody else lost. And on average, those two people were losing money relative to just putting their money into an index fund. So we have to ask, why was the other party there? And I think there's a few motivations. So there's the purely rational financial motivation that in, in this case, maybe Nicholas was, was being motivated by. Uh, everybody who took the wrong side of that bet, um, you know, either they, maybe they, they, they mis, uh, they, they estimated incorrectly their, their, their level of knowledge. And then there's also the motivation as with, uh, sports betting, for instance, where, um, you know, folks that are watching the game uh, find it more exciting if they put some money on it. And so there's not necessarily a rational incentive to increase their, 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 their capital. So, so in fact, most participation in most financial markets does seem to be from speculators who on average lose money. So uh, in some sense, there's just this, you know, ex excess hope or optimism out there in the world. 
that people are willing to channel toward financial market bets and they lose on average. And that basically taxing that is what funds a lot of the rest of the financial industry. And prediction markets can take some of that away from the rest of the financial markets in principle. That is, people are willing to bet on a range of things and uh, we could offer prediction markets as a thing they switch to instead of betting on the other things. I'm more skeptical about whether we can increase the size of that pie of all the things people are just willing to lose money to bet on. Uh, but I, I agree that there's uh, some room there for taking a cut of that market. Uh, but I still think that's overall a pretty small fraction of the social value available of information aggregation in society. Uh, the value that people are willing to lose to bet on markets just because they are overly optimistic around their chess is, is, is limited. Well, right. I mean, the, the, sport mar uh, the sports betting market is, is massive. Uh, you, could, you could kind of extend the same sort of concept to, you know, entertainment topics, you know, uh, right. w w Game of Thrones finale or, or something like that, or even, you know, politics, which for many people is, is uh, as entertaining as sports. Right. So, I mean, as, at an absolute level, there's room for, you know, 100 companies your size. You know, there's a big world out there of entertainment and betting is one kind of entertainment for many people and you could supply that market. And I don't object to you doing that at all. Uh, I'm just trying to point people to this much larger market uh, that's out there as yet not very well served. I, I'd love to dig, uh, Nicholas, sorry to pick this hijack conversation here, but, but um, I'd love to dig in on that. And so, so Robin, I guess what you're getting at is the idea of um, kind of private prediction markets within organizations. Is that? What you're referring to well that that's in my mind the first big example that's worth pursuing yes so if you ask about where the biggest decision value in the world is it's in organizations making organization specific decisions and information is very valuable to those decisions and so information markets i.e prediction markets can uh, have a, a big potential revenue and you know potential business there from serving those customers i guess you could imagine a software as a service sort of sort of uh, offering that sells to enterprise clients and allows them to spin up their own prediction markets, maybe subsidize them and get uh, employees and, and maybe even customers to. So, so this, this is a key issue, I think, in blockchain business practices. That is, what I've seen in most of blockchain businesses is that they are quite eager to create sort of tools and platforms because uh, that's kind of a software task and they, and they, you know, write a white paper about their software algorithm and their structure, and then they implement that software. And they tend to think all the other business things you need to do beyond the tools and platforms are somebody else's job. And then nobody really gets funded to do those other jobs. And that's actually a big problem with the blockchain world is uh, there's enormous amount of investment and effort in tools and platforms and relatively little in other ways you have to pursue business customers <laughs> and serve them. Uh, and so that's also true, I think, unfortunately, in the betting market world, that as a lot of firms are willing to sort of put up a tool or platform, they say, here's a place you guys can come bet. You figure out how this will be a business value to you and how to sell that and, you know, how to figure out who to participate and what incentives they should have and what topics. You, you figure that's all somebody else's job. And then nobody does that job. Right. Just to, to, to be clear, um, you know, uh, Futur is kind of on the on on the opposite end of the spectrum in the sense that um, while we do, you know, people are betting with crypto, we are not a blockchain decentralized organization. We're not building this kind of core technology that, for instance, Augur or Gnosis right. or some of these other blockchain projects are, are working on. We wanted to generate useful forecasts as quickly as possible. So we started with play money in a centralized way. You know, we are the oracle. So we, we determine, you know, how, how uh, events uh, are resolved. And, you know, we're doing it with a regular database you know, on servers and, and, and so on. I applaud and approve. I, I, I think people are going too far trying to put blockchain in everything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it, you know, throw a little blockchain on it and uh, uh, this seems to be a, a part of the, the impulse. And I, th I think there's really interesting technological and even philosophical problems that are being raised uh, in the blockchain world. But I don't think that's been the issue with prediction markets. Um, I, I also not sh entirely sure, you know, when I, I worked for um, selling to enterprise customers for a long time and, you know, there's a big market and a big demand on the side of big companies for consulting services, right? So it's very easy for these companies to, you know, put out a bid for a couple of hundreds of thousands for 
someone to explain to them how do I use this product in my company. So I'm not entirely sure that's one of the obstacles to use of prediction marks in companies. So, so I mean, let me be more concrete. Um, so say we talk about the market that might tell you whether to keep your CEO. <laughs> if you're a consulting firm, you're not likely to recommend that because there's not an extended practice to point to. And uh, you're not likely to just adopt it without other people having done it. So for many kinds of practices like that, somebody needs to do some initial demonstrations and then you know, have a track record and then be experts you can consult about how exactly to do that right, because there's lots of ways to do that wrong. And unless somebody sits in that space of you know, getting some examples started and then having a track record and then learning how to get it done right, most people aren't going to want to try it themselves. Another example would be prediction markets in hiring. That is, say you have a you know, half dozen candidates for hiring and you're going to pick two of them. You could use a prediction market to decide which of these people is most likely to be evaluated as successful if you hire them, say, after two years. That would be a valuable product that firms might want to adopt, but no one's really going to want to adopt it until someone has experimented and worked out the bugs of that. And this is just the general nature of innovation in a wide range. That is, it's not enough just to have the tools you could put together to make something work. Some, somebody has to actually put those tools together, make a trial version, work out the bugs, get a track record, and then try to convince other people to adopt that you know, demonstrated practice. That's how innovation works most everywhere. And that's what's lacking in prediction markets. Not the general concept of a prediction market might be useful, but working out specific use cases in some detail and, and you know, again, working out the bugs and having a track record. That's what we are missing. Um, so with Futura, we do have quite a track record of actually predicting events and we're, we're exploring, we do have uh, a number of conditional markets. Robin Great. talked a little bit about this, uh, you know, the idea of Futarchy uh, is, is, you know, you set up conditional markets and, uh, it, you know, in case, in, the, in, in condition A, uh, uh, if it occurs, you're betting on the outcome, or if condition B occurs, you're betting on the outcome. Whichever condition doesn't occur, you simply cancel the market and return the money to betters. And in this way, you have uh, an advice from the market about what the potential impact of certain decisions might be. So I think it's a really compelling kind of mechanism. and. Like I said, we've, we've launched a few of these conditional markets. We're thinking of launching your favorite markets, Robin, which are, which are the fire, the CEO markets. I, um, I very much applaud. I would very much love to help you in any way I can. <laughs> so uh, just to, just to think it through, uh, it, there's nothing preventing us from setting up a market that says, you know, if Sundar Pichai is, is, uh, the CEO of Google at the end of the year, uh, the stock price will be above or below X. And if. If not, the stock price will be above or below X to let people bet on those, those outcomes. Do you, I don't know of any legal issue that would prevent us from doing that. So I, again, I think this is a business issue. That is the customer for that is really the board of directors. They're the ones who by all rights should authorize that market and pay for it, but you have to convince them it's worth it. Yeah. Well, hey, and so, so, so I think we're coming at it from different angles. So you're thinking of this as sort of a a SaaS product that is, that is being paid for by the organization itself. What we're doing with Futur is we, we're an independent neutral platform. We have all sorts of questions and, and, and you know, topics that we, that we cover. One of them might be, um, company performance. Uh, this is an external to the company. The board of directors isn't making a decision as to whether we're going to add the market or not. They're simply looking at the data that we might be providing and determining whether they want to integrate that into their decision-making. Uh, but the market itself would be driven by regular people or maybe experts or, you know, whoever is self-selected and wanting to bet in those markets. Right. So, so the nature of information is that information is sometimes really only valuable to a narrow range of people. Some other information is valuable to a wide range of people. And another fact about information is you could just generate it and, and gift it to the world. Uh, and then you have a problem of giving people incentives to do that gifting. So, uh, in the case of firing the CEO, say there may well be people associated with the firm who just out of the goodness of their heart or some matter of pride would like to tell the world of something about their opinion about the quality of the CEO, but that's not how usually we organize firms in terms of paying people to do this sort of work. So as, as we mentioned before, most jobs that need doing in the world, you have to pay to get them done that mostly 
if you just tell people they need to be done and ask them to do it out of the goodness of their hearts, most jobs that need doing won't get done. And that's also true about you know, telling which CEOs are good about which firms. Uh, we, we organize firms in ways so that we pay people to do jobs in firms. <laughs> and one of the key jobs in a firm is deciding whether the CEO is doing a good job. And we pay boards of directors to do that. And ideal, you know, the obvious people who should authorize payment for paying a consultant or something to do that job is the board. So if, if the board is used to just hiring consultants who write a report, the problem is that that's not as good a way to get the information. We need to show them that there's this other way they could pay money to get this information that would be more cost-effective for them. And in order to show them that, we need this track record. Well, I think in that case with the CEO firing market, it just seems hard to build a track record, right? Because I mean, these markets make most sense when you have a large public company that's on the stock market. So you have that um, variable that you can um, sort of make the outcome conditional on. And, you know, it's probably very hard to convince the first company to do that, to get that track record, because these companies are very public. Right, so right. So, so you, you may have to like just pay yourself to make 10 or 20 of these markets and get a track record for them and then try to sell it to the next 2000. Um, or like what you said, I, lo I loved your idea, Robin, of um, hiring, for example. I think that's a very obvious right, so, case. Right, so, so that's, there's a lot more potential customers for that out there. And the, the threshold for getting them to buy in is much lower. So it makes more sense as an, as an initial smaller thing to try. But again, nobody's really that interested in buying that until somebody works out the product and shows some sort of track record with it. But in hiring, the advantage is you could start smaller, right? You don't have to yes, be a of big course. public firm. Right. So even smaller firms maintain yeah, so, records. So any, any group of 20 people who's hiring two more people this year and is looking at eight candidates or something, um, as long as they agree that within two years, they'll have some agreed on measure of how good their experience was with, with the people they actually hired. And they could bet on what that evaluation will be after two years. That's good enough to set up these markets. Yeah. And to any entrepreneur that's listening right now, I think that's a, a magnificent business idea that could also sort of provide the track record to eventually sell right. prediction markets and more kinds and of outcomes. There, there's, there's dozens of other plausible business concepts like this, but, but the key thing is uh, it's not enough just to have a platform where someone could make a bet in order to make this work, right? Somebody has to use such a platform to then make a series of actual bets that are tied to actual organizations where they make choices about how they structure it and uh, who's allowed to trade and what the incentives are and who's allowed to see things and you know how that fits into the rest of the process and then have some trials where they do that with real organizations uh, over a period of time to get a, some sort of a track record and then you can start to sell that product i think if you were to think about like a taxonomy of prediction markets uh there's the category of prediction market that deals with relatively publicly interesting information. So for instance, will, will, uh, you know, will Trump, uh, will president, uh, et cetera, you know, uh, will Biden, you know, uh, be elected. Um, and then there's much more specific niche information where, where it makes sense to have a private prediction market. So in the case of an employee market, um, obviously the, you know, those metrics are internal and the evaluations are internal and people who are betting and voting, uh, on those, on, on the, on employee performance, for instance, that's going to be an internal service. So you could imagine a platform like Futur being the public facing side of things. And, and I, I would make the case that, you know, with the CEO markets, uh, for the big companies, at least big public companies, this doesn't need to be an internal private company-based market. There's people outside of Google that can form an opinion about whether the oh, Google CEO. So, so, so make two distinctions, make the distinction between who should participate or who are the likely people to participate and then who's going to pay for it? And then maybe who should be allowed to see the prices? What we have at Futur is we have, everybody can see the prices. Uh, you know, the, the, that's kind of the point is we're making these forecasts publicly visible for everybody, whether they're betting or not. And we are inviting people who are self-selecting to who might want to bet on these things. And, and so you can use it. Uh, maybe the CEO example isn't the best one. It might be better to think about. Um, and in fact, we have these markets now, conditional markets, a big a number of our users are based in Brazil and uh, the Brazilian elections are coming up at the end of the year. And so we have some markets on, and Robin, I've heard you talk about this before, uh, certain, certain metrics conditional on whether a given candidate wins the election. So there's the Bolsonaro version and there's the Lula version in Brazil. 
And, you know, what will GDP be at the end of 2023? What will, uh, you know, average lifespan be? Number of violent deaths? You can pick any number of metrics. Right. Those are all great. And so, and that's drawing on people's inclination to sort of altruistically contribute to a public conversation. But you'll only make the money if somebody else loses. So on average, everybody has to be wondering which group they're going to be in. And there is some degree of optimism where people are overly estimating they're going to be the winner, but that's a limited pool of resources you can draw on. That is, people only have a limited degree to fool themselves into thinking they're going to win when they actually going to lose. I certainly do it because I also want to improve, right? Because there's a fun element in it. I get compensated a little for the time I invest in it. And I want to so, get better at it, right? For the same yeah, reason right. that so, people but, play but, poker. But think about all the topics in the world that you have a limited willingness to spend time practicing yourself, improving yourself, and you're willing to do that on some topics, but not on most topics out there. And so people with these various topics are competing to appeal to the people willing to do this. I think Nicholas, that's a great point, which is that in it, the, there's a number of benefits uh, uh, to prediction markets in, you know, generating better forecasts through kind of collective uh, intelligence and so on, aggregating information. And then there's also the, the uh, improving one's own thinking around probabilistic uh, thinking. You know, when you put money on prediction, you need to be much more rigorous and disciplined uh, and hold yourself accountable to that prediction. And I think there's a, there's a, some basic sort of human yeah. flaws that, uh, that we can begin to address using mechanisms like this. Right? Also, Another if you're, in, yeah, uh, if you're naturally a curious person, not only the probabilistic reasoning, but it's also just fun to do research and learn about, mm -hmm. you know, topics like that. Right. Absolutely. I was just going to kind of to, 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 to continue on the point of, you know, we've got publicly facing prediction markets, which may or may not be. So in our case, revenue comes from a commission on prices. Uh, we use. I don't think we've talked about this yet, but we use a, an automated market maker. Uh, Robin is familiar with those. He, he, I think invented, I'm not sure the category, but he invented the, the LMSR, which was logarithmic market scoring rule, uh, which was a early prediction market market maker. Uh, and the advantage here is that you don't need a, an order book. So a, a typical stock market would have an order book where you've got buyers on one side, sellers on the other, and the order book matches them up based on their bids. Uh, there's a number of problems with that, including, you know, a big spread between a, the bid and the, and the ask. A lot of times you'll, you'll want to buy a position or sell a position and there won't be a counterparty to match that right away. Uh, so we use an automated market maker, uh, an evolution of the LMSR uh, called the LS LMSR to provide liquidity at any time. So anybody can buy or sell at any time. And this allows us to spin up uh, as many markets as, as we want. So we can do a lot of smaller niche markets that have kind of instant liquidity. Our potential risk is, um, limited. So, so the, the algorithm allows you to limit your risk. Um, and it, you know, in that way we're kind of subsidizing these markets, but we're able to on average statistically over any number of markets generate, uh, a little bit of revenue and, and kind of get above break even by adding the, the tax component. So it kind of an this commission on top of the trades. Robin, curious to hear your thoughts on that, about the difference between kind of order book prediction markets and market maker prediction markets, automated market maker. As prediction markets were originally coming around, the familiar markets that we had had before that were just far thicker markets with far more activity and trading and volume. And then people had mechanisms for supporting trading in those environments. And they had an order book and they often had market makers who sat in the middle, but because the volume was so large, it was well worth having an intelligent market maker who thought carefully about the offers they made. And by contrast, we imagine prediction markets to be much smaller markets with a lot less going on and, and they can afford a lot less attention. And so then one was naturally going to think about, well, how could one have just a simple dumb market maker that wouldn't be as clever or as good as a intelligent one, but might be good enough for the purposes because it's much cheaper. And so in that context, you know, I looked at the literature on, you know, automate market makers for larger markets and saw that there were this standard sort of liquidity based market maker, which just had a price as a continuous function of quantity of its, of its assets that it was holding. And that seemed to make sense to me for prediction markets. And then I worked out a variation that made more sense for 
a limited range market, like when the probability goes from zero to one, and then a combinatorial version where you have a set of probabilities over a space where the sum adds up to one. And so the logarithmic version is just a version that makes sense for that space of probabilities. But the general idea is just to have uh, something with this continuous relationship between its quantity and its price, because that means it can't be gamed. That is, every time you move, if you ever move the price back to where it started, its assets are exactly back to where it was. So you can't steal money from it or trick it. And, you know, that also turns out you can prove that as you go to any possible limit in the prices, there's a limited amount of money you can lose. So you can't trick it and it can only lose a limited amount of money. And that seemed like a nice feature for something that was supposed to be dumb. And you're going to feel in the context of people who might be very clever and try to trick it. And so, you know, if you just try to set up a simple market and not pay much time or attention to it and, uh, you know, turn it on and let it go, then uh, that seemed like a good trade-off in that context. So it's not intended to be sort of the optimal thing when you're willing to put a lot more time and effort into clever algorithms. It's just supposed to be simple and safe. Fantastic. Um, I'm curious, Robin, you said before that there are tons, yet you see tons of other use cases in firms besides hiring. Were you thinking of any others? I, I'm happy to talk about lots of other use cases. I mean, there's, there's plenty to consider. So for example, we have these combinatorial prediction markets that we worked on and many design choices are combinatorial. That is, you often have a set of design elements and you're trying to figure out what combinations of design elements to include in a design. And a combinatorial market is a way that large groups of people could contribute to that combinatorial choice. Uh, that is, which features should be included or not. Uh, and, and in general, just any sort of big decisions you have, you could have decision markets for. You can have decision markets for the configuration of a product, for its pricing, for who should be in which jobs, uh, for you know what sort of pr processes you should have to check things, you know what sort of check marks you should you should trigger to what sort of other actions. Just any any of the many thousands of choices firms make, in principle, you could have prediction markets that advise those choices. Yeah, I, I see that. Um... However, I often see that many of these decisions are kind of a bit intractable, right? So I sold information products myself to big companies and it was very often the case that it wasn't the underlying quality of the data, but more the credibility of what you were proposing that was selling, right? So Absolutely. in that case, it's the better story that wins, not the better information. Right, so, so or Basically, the basic fact about large organizations today is they are really sort of large battlefields of political coalitions. And, you know, there's just war going on all the time and, and villages are burned and crops are burned. <laughs> just bridges, bridges are destroyed. It, it's just a battlefield. And in that context, uh, it's sort of amazing things work at all. And we're basically, we only have a few centuries behind us of learning how to deal with the large organizations and we're slowly getting better, but we're just a long way from knowing how to deal with these things well. And therefore, one of the things you should realize is that in most organizations, most managers present themselves as scientific decision makers, right? They've got a spreadsheet and they're trying to calculate the best decision, but it's more reasonable to think of them as a uh, politician. <laughs> They're trying to be part of a coalition and support their coalition and give the impression that uh, other, you know, undermine the other coalitions. Uh, and that's just a complicated process. And in that process, th they're kind of wary of sort of generic new information processes that they can't control very well. So uh, a way to think about this is that, um, so imagine in the C-suite, you put in an someone who is relatively autistic who just knew the business really well, but had no awareness of what the various political coalitions were or agendas were. In a meeting, they would just speak up with whatever that popped into their head as the most informationally relevant to the topic. There's just no way they would last very long in the C-suite. <laughs> right? They might become a good trusted advisor of somebody else in the C-suite, but they would just not be allowed to be there uh, throwing the weight around, making you know random disturbances, because that would just be too disruptive. So you you can see that, you know, the 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 political games are so important that in fact, most organizations, when they have forecasting arms, they don't actually put that much resources into the forecasting arms. And they basically hint to them a lot about what answers they want, because they really don't want such a thing just out of control that, that, that would just be unpredictable. And so that's one of the main problems with prediction markets is the simplest way to field them is to just make a market on a topic and let everybody see the price. And that's like putting the autist in the C-suite. 
it's just very disruptive to the political process. Most of the time when, you know, organizations have groups that give them, you know, forecasting or they hire consultants to give advice, they manage that process well to make sure they, they aren't going to get surprising answers that will disrupt them. That's just, you know, well-known how consulting goes. And that's, these are the big obstacles to, uh, you know, fielding prediction markets organizations. This is why you can't just do the straightforward thing. You need to do a lot of trial and error and practice to figure out what variations will actually work in what context. Exactly. We often get taught in economics that companies are profit maximizers. Um, but in reality, it's more that individuals or employees of firms maximize their private benefits. But of course. the company bottom line is kind of a disciplinarian, right? That's kind of also a way in because you, in the end, still have to make a profit, right? So, you know, any product that helps you reduce costs or right. increase revenue, despite all the obstacles and the politics, um, has a chance to be implemented. There is general and overall selection process whereby the firms that just don't do the things that maximize their profits slowly lose money and are eliminated from the game. But that doesn't mean any one firm is very well tuned to like trying to make sure they adopt those things or get rid of the things that are inefficient. That's the fact about organizations is that it's much more about selection than about intentional choice. Exactly. So when I was in sales, you have to navigate that, right? So you have to, on the one hand, show that what you do results in a benefit, but also that you navigate the politics of who do you make look good and who do you make look bad, right? So very often a project Absolutely. succeeds or fails based on how good you can make someone look. And that's the world. Now, there may be ways to reorganize corporations in order to reduce those problems. And prediction markets could, in principle, tell you about what those ways are. But you'll have to first convince people to adopt them in order to let you tell you those things. So this is sort of the, the general problem of giving good advice. The, the biggest problem is to convince people to ask for good advice. How else would you suggest to reorganize organizations? I mean, my, this is my one good idea. <laughs> This is the one I, I'm going to push on. I don't have that many other good ideas how to organize firms. I think firms, you know, it's, it's a pretty hard problem. I have ways to reorganize other parts of our world. I have ways like you should buy medicine differently or we should organize the criminal law enforcement world differently. I've got some big proposals I could tell you there. But in terms of how to reorganize firms, I don't know. What I would trust more is, say, the prediction market. If it told me how to reorganize a firm, I'd want to do it that way. And do DAOs have a role to play in that context, decentral autonomous organizations? Uh, I haven't seen much about the actual experiments there. I don't know, you know what they've tried. I mean, from a distance, it looks like they set up somewhat simple mechanisms that they're going to rule. And then it's often voting mechanisms, and I don't have great confidence in those. Uh, I, I would be interested in trials where it was more just a decision market running the firm. And then people have talked about doing those things. But as far as I know, they haven't really done that seriously. But I'd be happy to participate in experiments like that. But you know, again, you know, but often what people want the, the appearance of some sort of prediction market, but they really want some sort of voting system where they've got the votes to make sure they win. It's exhaustive what I've seen in many DAOs. Um, I think there seems to be a lot of public confidence in in voting as a mechanism, but you know, that's something for, again, for entrepreneurs out there, you know, if you want to set up a DAO based on prediction markets, follow Robin Hansen. It is interesting. The idea that, that Robin, you mentioned that, that, uh, you're skeptical about voting in general. Does, does that apply to kind of the broad idea of, of democracy? Do you think that there's, um, well, it's, a, it's, a, it's again, what the alternatives are. <laughs> I mean, the, the advantage of voting at the larger national level is that you legitimize the government system for all these citizens who otherwise don't feel very affiliated with it. So that's less of a problem in most smaller organizations. That is, people can just up and leave. So that the ability to leave makes a big discipline, say, for employees uh, in a firm or, or even investors. But for the national level or even large cities, people won't necessarily feel very good about an organization they don't have much control over. And that's the main advantage of democracy is just giving them that connection. Um, and then in terms of actual mechanisms for governance, decision markets, futarchy would be a proposal. I, I guess you imagine that uh, operating kind of by itself. We just settle on whatever the uh, universal uh, metrics are that we can all agree are, are we should optimize for and um... well, so at the highest level, my, my general position would just be 
here's a mechanism that's promising. We should just start with lots of small scale experiments and work our way up to bigger versions. I've described the larger scale sort of city or national governance models as a way to inspire the smaller level efforts. Uh, it would be stupid to reorganize an entire nation based on some speculative writing about this alternative form of government that hasn't really been tried at smaller scales. That, that would just be stupid. But what wouldn't be stupid is to try the smaller, try it at smaller scales. And as you succeed, go to larger and larger scales, you know, continuing to apply whichever variations seem to have been the most successful. So um, fantastic. I loved what you said, Robin, about doing loads of small experiments to see what works in a small scale and then doing on a bigger scale because that's what I'm actually doing in Prospera, which is a yes, special economic zone in I'm, Honduras. I am, yes. I'm a, I am a, a fan. <laughs> well, my one last sermon is basically, there's all these people in the world who want to help the world. They feel altruistic. They're willing to spend some of their free time helping the world. And what they end up doing is like reading a lot and then you know giving speeches and then joining sides of various political fights. And then they sort of wistfully wish that like the world could be different in some ways, but there's just all these actual ways the world could be different. And the limiting factor is people doing these small scale experiments. That's actually the limiting factor for lots of big ideas that could change the world. And the limiting factor is not having lots of people willing to go out and march and, and yell for them or advocate for them at parties. The limiting factor is concrete small scale experiments. Ex you know, Try small scale experiments on promising ideas. That's a limiting factor on what how the world changes. That is a sermon that could go viral. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for that. And again, in Prospera, we do exactly that. And we kind of have a regulatory sandbox, right? So it's not no regulation, but you know, you pick your regulation. You can even write it yourself as long as you find an arbitrator and an insurance to hold you liable, right? So many of these things we talked about, you know, some are already possible, sort of bring predicting markets to big firms. But for other things to get started, making a prediction market, for example, that's also possible here. So if you're an entrepreneur uh, or an innovator or um, a researcher or just a naturally curious person, hear what Robin said, you know, we can actually build things. So I would like you to, um, to invite you to join me for a conference I'm organizing on November 18 to 20 on Prospera. It's called the Prospera Fintech Summit 2022. And just go on infinitafund.com to sign up for the summit. And I hope to see you here in Prospera. Thanks so much, Tom and Robin, for the fantastic discussion. I really, really enjoyed this. And I hope this inspires our listeners to help build the future we want to see. Thanks, Nicholas. Thanks, Robin. It was a great talk. Thanks for having us. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.